So I go back to, you don't need to turn to the table of contents, but again, I just want to add context of where we're at today. Where are we at in the process? Um, and as you know, the next um, three quarters, if you will, three and a half quarters, it's all about really digging into the, the major doctrines of the Bible, right? Ten, to be specific. And we started with bibliology for a reason, right? As we talk about general revelation, we, we see outside today, right, clearly um, the, the divineness of, of God, our Creator, and how beautiful it is. And yet, to understand who is this God and who are we in this universe, right, we have to understand special revelation, which is what we find in God's Word. So that's why we started with bibliology, to make sure we understand the importance of Scripture. We talked about its inspiration, inerrancy, authority, sufficiency, right? With that as the foundation, now we can start digging into some of these other doctrines. And we're right now in the rest of this uh, quarter, if you will, talking about God, theology proper. And we talked about this, this complex doctrine of the Trinity, right? Three persons, one God, each being fully God. Hard to wrap your head around. And Pastor Allen even said it, as you dig into any of these doctrines, Right, you get to a point where it's hard. It's hard to understand. And we'll see that today with some of uh, God's attributes. And so now we're actually starting to get into his attributes. So lesson eight today, we're going to be focused on God's greatness. And we'll cover some of those attributes. And I just, I will share with you guys on my journey um, in my sanctification. It wasn't until I came across a, a book by Arthur Pink that that describes or, or does kind of a study on the attributes of God. And it was just so enlightening to me because, as you know, foundationally for us to understand who we are, it all starts with who is God, right? And so now to understand not the completeness of God because we can never know the completeness of God, but all that he wants us to understand about himself it was just so enlightening to me and really opened up the scripture. So I just want to encourage you as we go through this, um, to continue to study the attributes of God. I think it will be um, just a, a wonderful, wonderful exposure um, to your, your sanctification process. So I just encourage that. All right, but we're on page 64, and we're going to start with, um, again, the greatness of God, but creator. Now, we've talked a lot about creation, but I really want us to dig into this passage and I want to see what, what it highlights about God as creator. I'll just read the top there. God alone <clears throat> is the foundation of all existence, from whom and through whom and to whom are all things. <clears throat> We're going to get to that verse, but I want that to be your cornerstone verse. Bold it, memorize it. It's going to be foundational to the rest of what we talk about. Okay, From whom, through whom, and to whom. Okay? Now, again, I want to read through this, and I want you to think about, as we read through this uh, creation account, what did God create? How is time described? How is order described? Okay? So I'm going to read through this and kind of highlight a couple things, but then at the end, I just want you to shout out um, some of those aspects, and, and I'll lead you through that. So let's start in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All right, so he created heaven and earth. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. So he created light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. <clears throat> You'll see that repeated, won't you? It was good. And God separated the light from darkness. So now we see light and darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning one day. So that's significant. Right there you see him establish what is realized as a day. There's a season of the darkness and the light. This period of time. As you know, there are many that, that will um, not agree with that and try and say that that was just symbolic, right? Clearly, though, we see here, and in, in there are other passages in Scripture that clearly outline a day as a 24-hour period, as we would know it, okay? And you start to see God bringing an, an order or dimension of time and space here, and we're going to talk a, a little bit more about that. 
Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. So we see heaven created. And there was evening and there was morning a second day. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth. So you see heaven and now earth. And the gathering of the waters he called seas. God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees, bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning a third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. So again, not only a day, but you see this time dimension of seasons. And you also see after the flood, the promise of the rainbow. What people often miss is there also a promise that the seasons will continue. All right. So this dimension of seasons and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, and it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. And God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. And God created great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply in the earth. And there was evening and there was morning a fifth day. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then he said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. All right, that's back to the Trinity piece we talked to um, several weeks ago. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. It's not listed here, but if you were to go on to verse 31, it, it starts to end that chapter with, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So you see throughout, he says it's good, but at the very end, after making uh, man, it is very good. All right, so, so a little bit of a recap. What did he create? The heavens and the earth, light and darkness, He defined a day. He brought in a dimension of time. We're going to see, though, does God operate or is he um, regulated by that same sense of time? Absolutely not, right? Get your head around that, but it's important that we do. But he absolutely is providing a time dimension to this universe that he created. The seasons that we talked about, the years, land and seas, vegetation and plants, fruit trees, Lights in the heavens, the sun, the moon, the stars, the animals of the sea, the land, the air, and of course, man. And not only did he create man, he brought an order to that, right? First came the man, then came the woman. And we were created how? In his image, different from all the rest of creation. And like we said, he created them specifically male and female. So this account of creation is so important for just... 
establishing the foundation of who God is. Right? Let me take you to Romans 1. You don't need to turn there, but Romans 1, as you know, is, is kind of that passage where the general revelation, we know there's, there's no excuse that people cannot know about God. And specifically, what does it say? I'm going to pick it up in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. All right, we talked about that, I think, week one. His eternal power, we talked about that aspect or attribute of eternality and his divine nature, right? That's why creation is so important to setting the foundation, the context of who God is and who we are in that context. And then we are blessed with, he goes on to give us the special revelation, right? So general creates the foundation, but it's amplified through special revelation. Why it's so important to spend time in, in God's word. Okay, any questions about that so far? About the creation aspect? Again, God's greatness. All right, top of the next page. Again, this idea of a time dimension. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. And as we know, as we point to the New Testament, we have this new idea of rest. We know that in Jesus Christ, our life can be at rest, right? It's not talking about a specific day in the New Testament, but we can now have rest from striving to be good enough, right? Striving with guilt. We can have rest in Jesus Christ. All right, if you go down a couple, um, the Psalm 33 passage starts to get at how. How did he create by the word of the Lord, heavens were made. So he simply spoke it. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host, he gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps and storehouses. Again, Psalm 33, for he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. The next one, for my hand made all these things. We talked a couple weeks ago. Does God actually have hands? He's spirit. But that's the, what type of language is that? You got it, right? Giving those human qualities. But clearly God initiated all that through his divine power. So here's the verse, again, that I want you to highlight in your Bibles. I want you to memorize it. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Let that always be, I'll call it a protective shield around you that keeps it all in perspective. Did God create us for, for our joy? For our glory? For our pleasure? Absolutely not. It was all created for God. For his joy. For his pleasure. Don't ever lose that perspective. So if we know, as it says here in Romans 11, if it's all about God, right? It's through him, it's to him, it's for him. It's all for his glory. What does Revelation say about his relationship to creation? We have to dig deeper, right? And understand the rest of his attributes to understand that, yes, he's creator. We know that he's you know, transcendent, far above creation. He's independent, self-sufficient. And yet, somehow, there's something going on with his creation. We need to understand that we can do that through his attributes. That's why I get excited about studying his attributes, especially today. So I want to talk about kind of three aspects of that relationship. And we start with this idea of self-sufficient. God is alone unto himself, all-sufficient, in need of nothing from his creation, and deriving no glory from them. God has no needs outside of himself. I hope that's crystal clear. God does not need us. He does not need our money. He does not need our time. He needs nothing from creation. He is self-sufficient. He is independent. The glory God receives back from his creation was first derived from him. And when we say that we give glory to God, what, what does that mean? 
What are your thoughts? Can we give God glory? Is he missing glory? Great. It's just acknowledging and um, yeah, I guess it's just acknowledging yep. his role in our lives, what he does around us, his creation, everything, and we're just um, not taking any of that onto ourselves, even our own abilities or skills or how we live or anything like that. But mm-hmm. just recognizing where it all came from. Right, yeah. We, we are simply ascribing what's due him already. We are recognizing uh, the glory that he already possesses. Created, not created, but of himself, his essence. And we see that, right, in the next passage in Nehemiah. Thou alone art the Lord. Thou hast made the heavens, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. Thou dost give life to all of them, and heavenly hosts bow down before thee. So as we recognize God's greatness through creation, how are we to respond? What's it say at the end there? We bow down, we worship. We worship our great God. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. What part of that passage is talking about the self-sufficiency of God? For the world is mine and all it contains. I love this next um, verse. Would somebody read Isaiah 40 for me? Who has directed the spear of the Lord, or as his counselor has informed him? <clears throat> with whom did he consult and who gave him understanding and who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding behold the nations are like a drop of uh, like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales behold he lifts up the islands like fine dust excellent thanks johnny so that i i feel like this passage and it's bolded of course perfectly describes his self-sufficiency i mean who can counsel the Lord. You see some of that in Job, and we'll, we'll cover that in other parts of uh, Scripture, Romans uh, 9. I, I mean, perfectly describes. I, I question for you guys, though. How often do we ignore this attribute and insert ourselves or our will in a situation? We read this, we understand it, but do we live it? Any thoughts on that? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'll give you a perfect, perfect example in my life, my sanctification. I, I think I've talked to you all before about, you know, we have seven children. They're older now, and several have, have moved out of the house. we got one married. There's this aspect that happened when they transitioned, though. You know, as, as little children, as dad, I can do so much to control that environment, right? There's so much that I can do to fix their problems. And as they get older and transition... Now, I can't do that anymore. And I've had to rely more and more, bring me back to this passage that, God, you are in control. What I can do is be praying. What I can do is point them to Scripture. It's just, it's been a wonderful journey in my life to point me back to this attribute of God and to make it, it's so pointed. So that's what children do to you, right? Great sanctifier. But um, personally for me, you're right, Green, it happens all the time in our lives. So what do we do? We start getting anxious we start wringing the hands. Let that be the signal that says, no, i got to go back to this attribute. Right? God is in charge of all. Pastor Allen. Sometimes we, we um, just think of the, the entire um, spectrum. Um, the opposite sometimes is true also. That sometimes we think, God sure is lucky to have me. Mm. Right? Or uh, God needs me for whatever. Um, and that's just pride. That's not true. And then it kind of like also plays in 
into um, like the various false doctrines and false religions that say that you're at least partially responsible for what happens in the world because like you know Catholics saying that they have to do such and such and such and such in order to be saved or just like any denomination thinking to yourself when something bad happened like there's a car accident thinking to yourself oh I did something mm -hmm. and messed this up mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. no, no. yeah so turn the page over 66 at the top there, the second one, and, and I just want to drive us back to this verse, what Pastor Allen and Grace are saying, right? This foundational verse again. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Like Pastor Allen was saying, you know, you can use that verse as a guard so that pride doesn't creep in. You know, Grace, to your point, every false religion tries to degrade what I just said. Right, If Satan can move you away from the greatness of God in his self-sufficiency, right, he starts to win the battle. Yes, Miss Cream. I'm just thinking about something based on what Pastor Allen said. Is so often, like if we're in, let's say we're in some kind of ministry or we're filling in some role and we mistakenly think that we're indispensable. Mm -hmm. or like maybe God is not wanting us to play in that role anymore or maybe we're just you know he's directing us in a different direction we think well what's going to happen to this program or this thing i've been doing because if i'm not there doing it it's going to fall apart and i'm not saying that we're not that god doesn't use us and that people you know don't need us or whatever but i think it's we need to be careful to not assume that we're indispensable and that we can't be replaced that God can't raise up from these stones, children. You know, He will supply the needs. Yeah. Yeah, it, I mean, it plays itself out in so many aspects of our lives. And that's why, again, I get so excited about the attributes and just an encouragement to, to come back to these again and again to reinforce yourself, to, to encourage us, right? So, yes, absolutely. How do we balance um, responsibility? and accountability from being indispensable. So for instance, we know we are God's foot soldiers. He has created us to manage his creation and we have to be at our duty post. How do we balance that? I need to be there because I have to be at my duty post. I'm needed to be where I should be and say, well, um, um, I don't have to be there because God will always provide and being indispensable. So I'm just trying to, how do we balance that thought? So always like, not be like, if I'm not there, the world will crash, or say that I need to be there because God needs me to be there. Yeah. So how, can you speak more to that? I, I'll share, and, and certainly others jump in. Um, I, I think of it in the framework, if you think back of, you know, working <coughs> through yourself or sanctification, there's an aspect of a synergistic aspect, right? Where where God is obviously in play here, but, but there is a role that we play. However, to do that role, what do we need? We still need, you know, His power, His Holy Spirit, His strength. We are given, He, he has chosen to use mankind to carry out His purposes on the earth. His purposes will always come to fruition, whether we fail or not, is, is how I like to think of it, right? So you're right, we, we have this duty this obligation, hopefully a joyous one, if you are in the Lord, to carry out those activities He has given us to do, right? He's prepared good works ahead of time. He wants us to walk faithfully in those. And He has gifted us with the skills and the talents to do that as part of a bigger body. If we fail, though, will that purpose continue? Absolutely it will, right? So that's kind of the, the balance that says God uses mankind to accomplish His sovereign will and yet his sovereign will will always happen, will always take place regardless of, of what happens with us. Now, our actions will be, will be judged at some point, and they'll be judged differently whether you are a Christian or not saved at all, right? But there will come that time where um, that will come to play. Does that make sense? Does that help? Anyone want to share to that? Uh, Pastor Allen. What, um, what Pastor Christopher is talking about is stewardship. Right? So back in Genesis 1, God created us uh, for his purposes and gave Adam and Eve very specific instructions and charge and responsibility. 
not as owners, but as stewards, that is serving their creator, not themselves. Um, and he holds us responsible for that stewardship, uh, even now. And so we have a role. He's going to help us in that role. He's going to um, judge our, our service. Um, and it's all subject to his ultimate control anyway. Yeah. So. I, I like how you frame that, the stewardship. I'll go back to my children, right? I feel this heavy, heavy sense of stewardship of what the Lord, Lord has given me. I think the danger that we talked about is starting to rely on my own strength or my own power to do that, to fulfill that stewardship versus continually coming back to, Lord, these are your children. You've gifted me with them. How can I best be a steward, right, of my time, my talents, my resources, you name it. Ms. Cream? I was just going to say that for myself, making those kinds of decisions, um, I, I just try to examine my heart, and I try to just ask the Lord to show me if I'm being lazy and selfish or not, and you know, He shows me needs, and sometimes I'm supposed to fill those needs and sometimes I'm not. Maybe I'm just supposed to pray. And I think it just all comes down to God guiding us, leading us, convicting us, and examining our hearts. You know, that helps to direct what we do. Okay, good. All right, so we talked about self-sufficiency. Now I want to talk about transcendent, his transcendency. And there's a definition here, but let me add to it first from, from Grudem, uh, Systematic Theology, the definition he gives is God is greater than creation and independent of it. I think that's a very good characteristic of transcendence. It also has this component, as you see in the book, of being incomprehensible, right? God is incomprehensible to the mind, to the human mind. No one can have exhaustive knowledge of the transcendent God. But I wanted to bring in those other aspects. He is gr much greater than creation and independent of it, okay? So that first verse there, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. How does this bring out that passage right there, bring out this idea of being of God being incomprehensible? Anyone want to take a stab at that? There are things that God has specifically chosen not to reveal to us. They're secret things. Right. Like, they're not ours to understand. They're not ours to know. Maybe someday we'll yeah. know some of it, but yeah. we're never going to understand all of it. Exactly right. The secret things belong to the Lord, and there's a lot of stuff He doesn't share with us. What He has decided is His revealed will that we see in Scripture. And what a blessed, blessed treasure that is. But to be incomprehensible means we can know true things about God, but we can't know Him exhaustively. And I don't know that we ever will, all right? It doesn't clearly say in Scripture. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. But all the more reason what he has revealed to us in Scripture, again, what an incredible treasure. The next passage, you might remember this from Job, and I'll give you the context. So you remember he had three friends that were giving him counsel. Not all of it was very good. Um, and even Job in the, past, or the chapter before this, Job 10, is feeling a bit sorry for himself. And as one of his three friends, Zophar, that's what you see here in uh, chapter 11. Again, they don't often give good advice, but this particular passage is extremely sound, right? Can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? They are high as the heavens. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. I love this verse because it really highlights the extremes of what we're talking about, right? His knowledge, high as the heavens and deeper than Sheol, right? Um, think about the analogy that Pastor Allen helped the line. It just goes infinitely in both directions, right? That's kind of what we're talking about here. And again, it, it shows the, that's why I love studying this. It, it shows the extremeness of this particular quality, his transcendence, Okay. Um, let's see which one. 
Yeah, let's go down to number four there uh, from Ecclesiastes. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart. Yet so that man will not find out the work which God had done from the beginning even to the end. Again, it, it hints at this idea that there is stuff um, that the Lord has not revealed, that God has not revealed to us. The next passage, I'll, re- I'll just read some of that. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult? Again, you get this idea of who was his counselor there at the time of creation, right? It was God. A little bit farther down, about three quarters down, it is he who sits above the vault of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless, but he merely blows on them and they wither. Let me ask you, what, what does this, we, we understand this idea of transcendence, right? Being above and independent of creation. But when I read words like this, makes the judges of the earth meaningless, he barely blows on them and they wither. What, what do you conjure up when you read words like that about God? And relationship to man. I know I'm trying to lead the witness here, but Miss Green. Just the um, contrast of the level of power and um, yeah, I mean, there's more words than power yeah. to fill that blank, but yeah. just the massive contrast between him and us. Mm-hmm. I was just going to say, it makes me think of, I'm pretty sure it was in the uh, logic semester, whatever, that I did with my mom, but it's like, God is to man as man is to like a dandelion. It's just like that extreme of a difference. Right, right. Yeah, so you guys are hitting on it. Um, I I wanted to take it a step further. Um, You can walk away if you just read that as seeing God as like this this big power king that sits up there and just, you know, a very impersonal God, right? When you hear words like he just blows on them and they fall away. You see that a lot in scripture. You can see some of that characteristic where in describing the extremes that you're talking about, you can get this, this feeling of him being just this God that sits up there directing things, but very impersonal. Okay. So my, my logic here is stopping at these attributes of self-sufficient and transcendency in the passages we just read. God may be viewed as unapproachable, as unknowable, and impersonal. And that's often how people view God. The view that God has you know, made creation, but then just kind of stepped off and let people do their own thing. What's that called? Theism. Theism. Right. That's when you hear that term deism. That's what people are referring to. Is this um, impersonal God, if you will? He's created. Yes, they recognize his power, but he's not involved in creation's lives. All right. And that's a big distinction about our God. Before we jump to the next section, I did want to hit that last uh, passage in Romans 11. It says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? So that's Romans 11, 33, 34. Do you remember what verse 36 is? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever, right? I keep pounding that verse. It is so special. All right, so we get this idea again from transcendence and self-sufficiency that again, we might have an unapproachable God. But then we come to this beautiful attribute called his imminency. And it's with an A, not imminent with an I, that he's coming quickly, but imminent as far as being personal. Even though God is incomprehensible, he is at the same time imminent, close by and knowable. Though he is beyond total understanding, he can be known, and known how? Personally as he chooses to be known. Indeed, in him we live and move and have our being. Hopefully that is just an extreme comfort and encouragement to all of us. 
The first passage there in Isaiah, For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit. Has that ever been you? I've been there. In order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. If you were to look across your page, it almost directly lines up with the Job passage. Was Job in that position? Right? Lowly in spirit? Absolutely. And yet God comforted him. Just a great example. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. And this is eternal life, that they may know thee. We can know God. The only true God in Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. I've mentioned it before and it's not listed here, but in Hebrews 1, I believe it is, it talks about Jesus being the exact representation of God. Right? If you want to know God, if you want to love God, then you need to study Jesus. You need to love Jesus Christ. That they should seek God, if perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us, for in Him we live and move and exist. As even some of our own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Again, a precious, precious verse. And why we share the good news, right? We want to share that hope and that encouragement with those that do not know God, a very personal God. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. It goes back Ao, to the stewardship question. That's how we can know God. That's how we can love God is by being a good steward, right? Obeying his commands. All right, good. So again, we talked about this idea of self-sufficiency, transcendent, but then this very personal nature of him being imminent, right? A very personal God. But how can, how can he have that personal relationship with everyone? Even the people in this room, as we scatter for the day, how can he be a loving intimate God with each and every one of us. That's when you get in the, into the omnis that we're going to discuss. All right, The three omnis is what makes it all possible. <clears throat> all right, so the first one is omnipotent. Omni, as you can expect, is a, a Latin prefix, which means all. Um, in, in Germany, they use this term I, I love. It's called uber. Uber, overall, or all, right? So omni, that's what that means. And then potent, power. So God is all-powerful. He is the only omnipotent ruler in the universe. He has absolute power to accomplish whatsoever his will is to accomplish. Now that's an important distinction. Let me read that again. He has absolute power to accomplish whatsoever his will is to accomplish. Even Satan and all evil are subject to the plans and desires of the Almighty. Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. And the next one, is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. Now remember the context of this, you see Genesis 17 and 18 this is after the Abrahamic covenant given in chapter 12. And what did he promise? The land, the seed, the blessing. And yet it didn't happen like that, especially the seed part. So that was the context of what was happening here is the, the Lord was um, being patient, if you will, uh, promising um, a son to Sarah. So that's what was happening in their hearts here. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? couple passages down in Isaiah. For the Lord of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? And as for his stretched out hand, who can turn it back? Right? The Lord's plans will always come about. There's nothing that can overcome his power. And I love the description here in Isaiah 26. Trust in the Lord forever, for in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. I love that. An everlasting rock. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. 
Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. So we talked, uh, I think it was a couple weeks ago. My purpose will be established. His purpose never changes. That describes what characteristic of or attribute of God. Do you remember? God is not, uh, never changes. His immutability, right? His immutability. Good, all right. Flipping over to the next page. All right, um, these next couple passages are, are really great in describing what I'm going to call um, salvation, sanctification, and glorification, and God's power in all of that. So if you will, let's turn to Matthew Matthew 19. So you've seen this verse before, right? Um, let me read it. And looking upon them, Jesus said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. All, all things are possible for God to do what? What's the context here? You're, you're probably familiar with it, but I think it's worth reading. I want to pick it up in verse 16. <clears throat> and it's the rich young man, right? And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, <clears throat> and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Right? So I wanted to add that context. This is about salvation. And it's only through God's power that we can be saved. All right? We would ask the same question. Lord, that seems impossible. For man it's impossible. To be a steward, to bring up our children in our own strength, in our own admonition, it's impossible, right? We need God. We need his power. <clears throat> Go down um, to the third verse. Philippians, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Again, this transforming, this sanctification of the body. That's what's being described here. And I talked about earlier, there is a synergistic aspect to it, but it's all foundational based on God's power and the faith and strength that he gives us through the Holy Spirit. All right, so the salvation, the sanctification. The next one, and I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. And the next verse, and I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. All right, this is chapter 19 and 21. This is our state of glorification. We will have new resurrected bodies. We will be with the Lord shouting hallelujah. All right, again, by the power of God, salvation, sanctification, and glorification. Now, let me jump into uh, Grudem here real quick on this idea of um, omnipotence. My question to you, and, and let me go back to the definition. He has absolute power to accomplish whatsoever his will is to accomplish. Is there anything God can't do? He can't sin. Okay, yes? Well, along those lines, he would not be able to go against his character. Right, right. Let me read this. There are, however, some things that God cannot do. God cannot will or do anything that would deny his own character. This is why the definition of omnipotence is stated in terms of God's ability to do all his holy will. 
It is not absolutely everything that God is able to do, but everything that is consistent with his character. For example, God cannot lie. He cannot be tempted with evil, and he cannot deny himself. Although God's power is infinite, his use of that power is qualified by his other attributes, just as all God's attributes qualify all his actions. This is therefore another instance where misunderstanding would result in one attribute if one attribute were isolated from the rest of God's character and emphasized in a disproportionate way. How do we see this play out often in our world today, where one attribute is overemphasized um, at, at negating the rest of them? God is love. love, right? We hear that all the time. God is love. God is also just. God is also righteous. God is also holy, right? That's why understanding and studying all of his attributes is so very, very important, which is why we're taking our time to very diligently walk through these attributes of God, okay? So I thought that was great. All right, so that's omnipotence, his power. Um, The next one is omniscience, his knowledge. God's knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent of the creature. In his sight, all things are open and manifest so that nothing to him is contingent or uncertain. God knows the future as well as the past. He knows and examines the hearts of all men. The definition given above, which I just read, explains omniscience in more detail. It says first that God fully knows himself. This is an amazing fact that since God's own being is infinite or unlimited, of course, only he who is infinite can fully know himself in every detail. The fact is implied by Paul when he says, For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For what person knows a man's thoughts except the Spirit of the man which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. It's hard to wrap your head around that, right? Um, But that's God. He knows himself fully, and yet he's an infinite God. Is it possible for him to know us? Absolutely. Absolutely. So a couple passages highlighting that. Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. The next verse where we see the anointing of of David by Samuel. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I would pause here and ask all of you to continue to pray for us as elders as we seek wisdom and discernment to hire, you know, associate pastors. Um, we've been blessed to have a couple candidates who are who are in the process, but you know, at the end of the day, we don't know. God knows, and we are desperately seeking uh, His wisdom and discernment so that we can protect and equip um, uh, this church and and have a a growing evangelistic ministry. So. Um, covet your prayers in that regard. As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. Um, this was David's charge to his son Solomon. A couple passages down in Job. Do you know about the layers of the thick clouds, the wonders of one perfect knowledge? I know that thou canst do all things and that no purpose of thine can be thwarted. Again, this is Job, right, who was in a very desperate state uh, making this acknowledgement of the omniscience of a holy, holy God. <clears throat> and then the last passage there in bold. O Lord, thou hast searched me and know me. Thou dost know when I sit down and when I rise up. Thou dost understand my thought from afar. Thou dost scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there was a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, thou dost know it all. What, what does that conjure up when you read that? This idea that there's nowhere you can go that God isn't, and we'll talk about that in a second, but that he knows all things before you even utter a word. Does that give you comfort or does that terrify you? Both, (laughs) hopefully, all right? It's a scary thing as you're sitting there surfing on the web or you're watching a movie or you're having discussions with friends, right? 
Um, it's, it's terrifying, it can be, but hopefully very comforting that you have a God that is personal, that has never left you, will never forsake you. Okay, on to the top of next page, 69. I want to go down, starting at passage number 4. Could someone read that me, starting with woe to those? Bob, would you read that one for me, please? Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord, and whose deeds are done in a dark place. And they say, who sees us, or who knows us? You turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? Then what... Then what is made should say to its maker, He did not make me. Or what is formed say to him who formed it, He has no understanding. Good, thank you. Where where do you see some of that language in the two, New Testament? Anybody? The Potter's Freedom section. Yeah. Romans 9. Romans 9, exactly right. Right. Paul uses a lot of the same um, argument, if you will. Who sees us? Who knows us? Good. The next passage, why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired? His understanding is inscrutable. What um, What does that term inscrutable mean? Impossible to understand. We can't fully know, as we talked about, right? But the creator knows, God knows. And it emphasizes there, there's nowhere you can run or you can hide. In Romans 1, we talk about what is the effect of, of people um, that they are without excuse, right? They see creation and they know God, but what do they do with the truth? They suppress it, right? They suppress it and they live a lie that they can run. They can hide from a holy God and they can't. There will come a day of judgment couple passages down in Romans 11. We, we read that, but it's worth emphasizing. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became His counselor? I again, you know, hearken back to what Io said about being a good steward. We need this counsel. We need this knowledge. That's the wisdom that's talked about in Proverbs and the Psalms. And so many other places. Right, We need to be fulfilling that stewardship with the, the knowledge and wisdom of the Lord. Alright, so we talked about in this omni-series, if you will, and again, we're highlighting this as, as the fact that how can God be transcendent, independent, self-sufficient, and yet be an imminent, a personal God? It's through these attributes of His, his omni-attributes, if you will. And so we talked about power, knowledge. The last one is going to be about His presence, or space. Now, we saw in the creation account, right? What did, what did we see there? We saw God, God create space, if you will. We understand the division between land and sea and the heavens and the earth and, and the sky, right? We see him create this. And yet we're going to see that God is not regulated by that. He doesn't operate in that time and space. God is all present. He is infinite in being, having no limits or restrictions to his size or to his presence. He is immense, filling and surpassing the universe. Nowhere can man flee from his presence. Let me read from Grudem again real quick. Yeah, I just wanted to read this definition. It's similar, but it has a slightly different characteristic to it. God's omnipresence may be defined as follows. God does not have size or spatial dimensions and is present at every point of space with his whole being. And yet, and yet God acts differently in different places. All right, we'll, we'll highlight that um, a little bit at the end. But he is everywhere with his whole being, his whole essence. It's not part over here, part over here. Kind of gets back to modalism, if you will, right? But the... the Comfort the encouragement that where he's at, everywhere he's at, it's his full being, his full essence. And it came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice, for he is a God. Either he is occupied or gone aside, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and needs to be awakened. So Elijah was mocking their gods, right? Oh, maybe he's on a vacation. Maybe he's asleep, right? That was the the false gods that he was mocking. That is not our God. 
he is always on on uh, duty, if you will, right? Always at his post. He will never leave us nor forsake us. Thou dost scrutinize my path and my lying down, and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Thou hast enclosed me behind and before, and laid thy hand upon me. Where can I go from thy spirit? Or where can I flee from thy presence? If I ascend to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there thy hand will lead me, and thy right hand will lay hold of me. That is so comforting when I hear that. When I, when I think of that passage of he's created good works ahead of time, Right To me, that's a very personal God that has created good work specifically for Christopher Green. All right? That's very personal. Um, it's just wonderful. All right, top of the next page. Then the men became extremely frightened and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. You all know the story of Jonah and somehow right? he thought he could just Flee from the Lord and escape. And the Lord intervenes directly in that. You all know the story. And yet he's still protected, right? God's purpose still has to be fulfilled. And he's still going to use Jonah to do that, right? So it's a wonderful, wonderful story. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? So I wanted to take that verse, and, and um, that's in Acts 7, but I know Solomon had a very similar, as he was building the temple, as he was instructed to build the temple, he makes kind of a similar claim as, you know, what house can I build that the, the Lord can actually go in, right? So he recognizes that. But what about some of the other instances we see in the Bible? What about the tabernacle? What about the, the cloud, the pillar in the day and the fire by night? How do you, how do you explain that in, in the sense of his um, omnipresence, being everywhere with his total, total being? Anyone want to take a crack at that? Right? So, so yes, during the time of the tabernacle, right, did, did, that was kind of a symbolic of this is where I'm at, right? And they built this uh, very elaborate tabernacle and tent around that. Very strict rules about entering into the Holy of Holies. So was he present with his whole, his whole being in the Holy of Holies? Yes. Yes. And yet, he was present everywhere else with his entire being in, in the rest of the universe. I mean, wrap your head around that. It's hard to do, but that's what was happening. Same thing with the cloud. Right? The cloud was symbolic of, of I am your God for that particular time leading them you know, through the exodus, if you will, and yet he was also present in the rest of the universe. Mind-boggling. I get it, but that's the truth. All right, any question on any of those attributes before we turn to um, the homework aspect? Because I think it will wrap it up nicely. Let's just jump to that, and then we can have any discussion you have. Um, under interpretation, I like, you know, how can God be both transcendent and imminent? So this idea of transcendence, right, self-sufficient, his independence, and yet be a very personal God. And let me start, um, let me read something real quick. God is both infinite and personal. Unlike other systems of theology, the Bible teaches that God is both infinite and personal. He is infinite in that he is not subject to any of the limitations of humanity or of creation in general. He created all those limitations, but he doesn't have to operate by them. He is far greater than everything he has made, far greater than anything else that exists. But he is also personal. He interacts with us as a person, and we can relate to him as persons. We can pray to him, worship him, obey him, and love him. And he can speak to us, rejoice in us, and love us. Apart from the true religion found in the Bible, no system of religion has a God who is both infinite and personal. Right? I thought that was distinct. So when you ask yourself, how can God be both transcendent and imminent? Like I said, down below in the application, I feel it's the omnis that allow that to happen. Right? That would be my answer. 
Any, any thoughts or things you would want to add on that question? How can he be both transcendent and imminent in the context of, I'll call it the omnis? So, is love? Yeah. Okay, he yeah. He cared for his creation and he cared for us and he made the man in his image so he loved him. And besides our sins, he created this wonderful salvation plans to rescue us. So I think love is the hinge to manage these two God. It's a cornerstone. Great, great point. Yes? There might be a little bit more in, in Corinthians, in first Corinthians 2, I think it is. Paul says that the natural man cannot know God. Mm-hmm. He can't be personal with God. Right. Unless the Spirit creates that. So that's, I think, the key that unites. It's love and then the Spirit is sent. So it's all coming from God. But the animal, man, which is the word he uses there, uh, is not able to do it. So even in that sense, you know, it's not a God that's personal to everyone mm-hmm. in, in creation. It's just personal to the ones he chooses to give the Spirit to. Yeah, so great, great point, love and the Spirit. And I love that reference because what should that do in us? We should be so desirous to share that good news because those who don't have God, right, they can't know him. Like we can know him in a personal way. That should totally energize us to be sharing the good news, to evangelize, to tell them about the love of God, right? <clears throat> Not just the wrath, the justice, but the love. And we see that just explicitly displayed in his son on the cross, right? Grace, did you have a comment? Yeah, I was just going to say it's, um, it's analogous to the Bible because all mm-hmm. creation testifies to God's nature, to his goodness, to his power, all of it. But he chose to have specific revelation in the Bible. He is transcendent. He's everywhere. Mm-hmm. He's unknowable. He's incomprehensible. But he also chose to be personally knowable yeah. in ver- in a very specific way. You can't like get to know God through anything but the Spirit. But the same sort of thing. Yep. Excellent. Good. All right. With a couple minutes left, let me ask you this: What limits our ability to know God in a personal way? What limits our ability? All, everything we just talked about, what limits our ability to know, truly know, and have that personal relationship with God? We, well, I'll give you one of them, right? We talked about lack of faith, not being saved. It's impossible to know God. But what else? What about even for us as Christians? What can limit um, some of that to, to know God in a personal way? Some of our self-centeredness. Self-centeredness, all right. What about um, how you were raised? So think about if you grew up, um, let's say, in a home where you didn't have a father. That plays a part in how you potentially see God. All right? It just does. Now, I'm not saying that's an excuse. We can come to the Word and know exactly who God is. But that can be an influence in our lives, is how we were brought up right, in the home. Um, religion. What kind of religion you grew up with can, can have, play a big part in understanding what we're talking about here. Ms. Corrine. I would argue that, yes, those things can affect how you view God in your flesh, but it doesn't limit Absolutely. how you know God because it's based on God revealing himself to you, which transcends all of our circumstances. Yeah, I, I like the way you frame that. And again, I want to emphasize what she just said. I'm not trying to say that that's an excuse or we're a victim if you're in that situation. It can influence Right, and, and that's why it's so important to come back to the true foundation, God's scripture, to truly understand. So, totally agree. Thank you. Pastor Allen. My mind's thinking about stewardship again, too. Mm. Um, you know, he's given us scriptures to reveal what we need to know mm-hmm. so that we, need, we know as much about him and as much about what he wants us to do. Um, and as good stewards of that great gift, we grow in our understanding of Him, of our uh, relationship with Him. Mm. But if we're poor stewards of that, we're not uh, receiving His Word, we're not um, ingesting it, we're not uh, yep. consulting it, we're not following it, um, we're not good stewards. Now, He can overcome that. Mm. He can um, get our attention real quick, mm-hmm. but 
our own poor stewardship <coughs> uh, hinders our knowledge of him, our yeah. Of him. Yeah, no, actually, and that was the point I had on here was the lack of knowledge, not being in the Word, but being a good steward of what he's given us. Yes, Green. I'm just going to say, I'm sorry, my brain is still back on um, the different things, the circumstances. Yeah. Instead of viewing those as um, things that are negatively affecting us in our understanding of God, mm. God uses those things mm. to help us to minister to others, to show us his glory, to work through our weaknesses and our, our sinful past, our sinfulness, because we're a weak vessel, but he still uses us. And so those things should not be seen as a negative. Instead, they are, they help us. God uses those to help us minister to others. Yeah, yeah. I kind of tie that back to his omniscience, right? Him knowing everything before they were even happening in our lives, and yet he uses them for his glory and our good. So that's a great point. Anything else? Any thoughts on that? If not, I'll wrap us up. All right, let me pray. 